The reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such, what such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible for everything that... Therefore, it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that flow from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are topics and issues that I have made a conscious decision not to preach on. They tend to be the types of things that people within the church have polarizing views on. And uh, it might surprise many people outside the church. I'm sure it's not going to surprise those of us inside the church communities uh, that um, within the church exists a large range of views about many things. Many, many things. I'm not saying that I will never feel convicted to preach on some of those uh, polarizing topics, but I have always felt that they are best discussed in small groups or one-on-one, rather than trying to convince often quite complicated topics into a 15-minute sermon or a range of 15-minute sermons. And I found too, um, and I know I've been guilty of this listening to other preachers as well, that a sermon can easily be misunderstood and misinterpreted. But the main reason that I've made those decisions is that my primary calling is to be your pastor. So whether your perspective on an issue is black, whether it is white, or whether it is a shade of grey, I am and I will always be your pastor. I also do believe that God has given me some gifts in helping others to see both sides of the perspective and come to an intentional pursuit of who God is and where we should be. But that, again, is more easily done with pastoral conversations. And as a preacher, I'm very conscious with the power um, 
position that I hold, that my words can sometimes appear to be dogmatic or directive. And those of you, I think, who know Ephesians well will know that chapter 5 can be quite polarizing. And some of you might be a little bemused as to why Bruno left out all the juicy bits. He didn't start at the beginning of chapter 5 when we've got to lots of interesting things like impurity, fornication, and obscenities. But importantly, he didn't go on and talk about the fireworks after verse 21, where um, we hear about how husbands should relate to their wives and wives should relate to their husbands. And then that goes on to talk about how children should relate to their parents and parents to their children, which then goes on and talks about how slaves should relate to their masters and masters relate to their, their slaves. Many of you be, might be asking, why? Well, the simple answer is that during this series, we're following the lectionary, which is a little bit, book of readings uh, that is set down for each day of the week and particular Sundays. And there's a section that we follow um, from Ephesians over the, ne- over the last six weeks that marries with what the lectionary says. And I must admit that the lectionary does seem to have a habit that when we get to Sunday mornings, all the hard-to-understand and controversial bits are often left out. So uh, you can blame the lectionary at one level. But as I reflected on how I would approach this part of our series, that it did dawn on me that the way that we see ourselves in relation to how we see others is actually an intensely pastoral issue. While I do know within our church there will be a variety of views on the topics of headship, egalitarianism, and complementarianism, and there will also be many of you who will be going, I don't understand what those three terms mean at all, Stuart. And while I'm not going to specifically address those issues this morning, our lectionary has left us hanging on verse 21, which I believe is more than enough to start with, to rest on, and to think about how we reframe the way that we look towards one another. I was very grateful uh, to have Graham Leo taking us on a guided tour of the culture um, and place of Ephesus in the world not just because um, it's on my personal bucket list to visit and nobody can travel anywhere at the moment. Uh, So it's nice uh, to have the wisdom of Graham's experience of actually being there in person and seeing uh, how this was all shaped um, in the ancient Near East. But I'm also grateful because I have always been an advocate for understanding the culture and the context into which the words of Scripture have emerged. It not only helps us to understand, it also helps us to interpret and to apply Scripture when we understand the culture in which the words come to life. Ephesus, like many major Greco-Roman cities, was a city of great influence and affluence, as Graham suggested to us, but it was also a city of deep division, 
And that division was around things like age, gender, religion, ethnicity, and social status. Honour and shame were primary motivators for behaviour, and strict adherence to societal norms was one of the ways to avoid shame and seek after honour. Ephesus was indeed a commercial hub and a multicultural population, but one which operated around specific expectations. Those with power exercised it, and those without power were to know their place. Our times have changed. The beginning of Ephesians has reminded that gathered community in Ephesus that in Christ they are a new creation. They have a new identity. And in chapters 4 through 6, and I began last week and I'll continue this week and Marianne will continue next week, we're continuing to understand how our identity in Christ drives our conduct and our behaviour. The Ephesian church has been given a new distinct identity so that Christians are no longer who they once were. Ephesians 4 through 6 presents both broad and particular instructions regarding Christian conduct, which is empowered by this new God-created reality, this new identity. Christians put off their old self and its ways of living and put on the conduct of their new self, their new identity. In this way, Christian living entails walking in the light of our new reality and not walking in the darkness of our old reality. So the big question is, if we have been invited to this new way of life, this new identity, how then should we live? And you'll find in these um, three chapters of Ephesians a number of do's and don'ts. And you'll find them in the passage that Bruno read this morning. They are not presented, though, as fixed rules. Rather, they're presented to help us understand what the will of the Lord is. Initially, I wanted to spend my whole message focusing on just two verses. Verses 19 and 20. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great words, aren't they? But as a, a person who loves music, loves to worship, loves to sing, it's so much more exciting to reflect on that idea of singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, so much relatable as we live in the world we are at the moment, than I thought it would be in finding where verse 21 tells
inseparable. Paul doesn't see psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as the soundtrack to Christian faith and practice. Paul's perspective is that singing, both aloud and in the quiet of our hearts, or in our cars by ourselves, is actually practicing your faith. Worship alone is not the church. It seems to me that Paul would agree that we cannot fully be the church without worship. Stuart Murray suggests in a quote that I quoted as many times as I could in my essays when I was at theological college, the hymnody of the of a church reflects its theology of church. The songs that we sing about worship are not just entertainment. They are instruction. They are consolation. They can be warning. And they are hope. We don't sing these songs because in every word they express what we already mean and how we already are. We sing them so that we would come to mean what they say and that we might come to reflect that in who we are and who we are becoming. I don't know about you, but often I find myself singing a worship song and being convicted that I'm not behaving in the way that the song and the words that I'm singing uh, suggest that I should be. Those moments of confrontation and conviction in worship are teachable moments. We learn as we sing. And growing up in the church, singing church songs uh, since I can remember, I actually don't know or I can't actually pinpoint any psalms hymns or spiritual songs that are about how we as humans exercise our power over another person. But I do know plenty of songs that are about the power and the love of God and the humility and service that we are called to in light of God's power. Much of what we sing in corporate worship, much of the Christian music that inspires our personal and our private worship, calls us to consider who God is, what God has done through Jesus Christ, what is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, and our response. And it's our response that brings us to verse 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Depending on the Bible that you are reading right now or at home, your translation might not say be subject to, it might say submit, or it might say obey. They're all the same Greek word throughout that whole passage. And I do know that those words can be triggering So I'm going to proceed carefully and, God willing, pastorally in the knowledge that words are important and how we use them is important. As Jean-Paul Sartre said, every word has consequences, every silence too. 
I do love words and uh, you would have noticed if you've heard a few of my sermons that I do sometimes like going back to the Greek words and the Hebrew words. In Hebrew, the word for worship can be interchangeable with the word for walk. And I discovered this in Genesis chapter 17 when God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. And he tells Abraham to walk before me and be blameless. That scenario was that Abraham at that moment was flat on his face in a posture of worship. He wasn't walking anywhere. And so that didn't make sense to me. And so I went back to to the Targum, to, to my Hebrew dictionary, and found out that the word for work, walk, is the same word that they use for worship. Translate that as worship before me and be blameless. It's also important to note that both Abraham and Abraham from that point on were not always blameless. And he had this nasty habit of passing his wife off as his sister to stop people from killing him and stealing his property. But when I discovered that the word for walking is the same word for worshipping, I was overwhelmed by this notion that our walking, our everyday living, is our worship. It's our personal psalm, hymn, or spiritual song. And I'm sure you know the the old uh, Disney classic, I think it's from from Snow White, that um, whistle while you walk, walk. so whistle while you work. Well, the biblical version of that song is worship while you walk. Getting my words mixed up. Whistle while you work, no, worship while you walk, that's better. (laughs) So if the question that we are posed by Paul is how then shall we live, the answer is, We live as worship to Christ. And if we are living that way, then that is and should and will be flowing through to how we see others. And this is where I find verse 21 incredibly profound, exciting and challenging and scary all at once. You'll find as we explore this verse that there is no framework of power or control. There is no distinction between demographic. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The word for reverence in verse 21 comes from the Greek word phobos, which is where we get the word phobia from. It means fear. But in the context as we read this verse, if we understand how the people from Ephesus are hearing this word, we begin to understand that this word reverence or fear is a posture and a position and an attitude of worship. It's exactly the same place we find Abram in Genesis 17, flat on his face, worshipping God in awe and wonder. Verse 21 is a radical call to define our relationships with one another 
regardless of age, gender, religion, ethnicity, and social status, when we are flat on our face worshipping Jesus from a position of humility. Now, that might sound radical today, but can you imagine how that would have been viewed by the people in that Ephesian church? Particularly, how it might have been viewed by those new Christians in Ephesus who had power. They might have been Roman citizens. They might have been male. They might have had a wife and children and slaves. Paul is reminding them that their foundation for the relationship that they have with all people, including their family, their children and their slaves, because of the new identity they have in Christ, is not what the cultural view in Ephesus said. It's not about power and control. It is about humility. Can you imagine how a woman in that culture who had been treated like a social commodity, who had been seen by some religions as less pure because of their menstrual cycle, might have felt when they heard those words? Could you imagine a child who had no economic value until they were of working age, might have felt, hearing those words. Can you imagine how a slave who had been captured, oppressed, and given a price, might have felt, hearing those words? In God's economy, you are valued, you are loved, And your status in Christ is the same as those who have and may continue to have and exercise power and authority over you. When we understand the power of this verse, when we understand the posture that it calls us to, then we start not only to look at our relationships differently, we start to look at the way we personally exercise leadership, the way that we are stewards of our power and our influence from time to time. If we are doing this from a posture of worship, then we will always be facing the servant king, Jesus, who laid down his life that we might have an intimate relationship with God and that our earthly relationships might reflect there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I know I do not get this right all the time. I am far from always being humble. For these times, I repent. And it's something that I need to repent of regularly. One of my favourite worship leaders, I can't remember if it was Tim Hughes or Matt Redman, it was one of the two, it was at a conference years ago, um, they're still both my favourite worship leaders, but I think it, think it was Matt Redman, pretty sure, he said, either you humble yourself before God, or God will humble you before himself. 
Either way, you'll end up humble. It's just much easier and less painful if you humble yourself. Even though I can't quite remember which one of them said it, I'll never forget those words. When I am in a humble posture, it is the only way that I know that I can truly see my neighbour, my family and the stranger as God calls me to see them. To find myself constantly in a posture of worship, to keep singing songs, learning from those words, being swept up by the power of the Holy Spirit, to being pointed in the direction of living my life in the knowledge that I am loved and that I am to love in the same way in return, that I am seen as a precious child of God, but that I should see others with that same lens that they are precious children of God. When we start to see ourselves in that position, start to focus our worship on who Jesus is and where we should be because of that. I don't know how we can keep from singing. I also don't know how we keep from loving one another in the way that we're loved. How do we keep from seeing each other as precious, as beloved, I pray that as we reflect on this one verse that we might find ourselves humbled and from that position of humility we see clearly into the eyes of Jesus in the way that he loves us and calls us to love one another. And as we stand from our position of worship, as we begin to notice those around us those who we do life with, those who we encounter on an occasional basis, we might begin to approach our relationship with them with humility first. That the example we show might be truly Christ-like. Amen. Can't keep from singing even though I'm going to put my mask on, so let's stand together as we sing.